Good morning, everyone. As Matt mentioned, I'm one of the attorneys at the office. Uh, Kristen and I, Kristen, who also be hearing from, we both work together as a team, primarily out of the state college office. Uh, we tend to focus more on the long-term care planning, special needs planning, and estate planning aspects of the office. But Kristen and I are really hoping today to just kind of have a conversation about more of the myths um, that tend to come up in our client meetings, um, just to make sure that at least, you know, everybody's aware of the, the common strategies and the common myths that people tend to come up with. Um, Kristen, did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself too? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Kristen, and I am a long-term care planner and a certified Medicaid planner with the firm. So I work with Jenna um, to make sure that we can meet everybody's legal and their planning needs. Little background, um, before I joined the firm, which I've been with the firm for over nine years now, I actually worked for the Area Agency on Aging, um, helping out with the in-home care through the waiver program. I am also a certified dementia practitioner and also um, took the next level for that and became a certified Alzheimer's disease and dementia care trainer earlier this year. So um, lots of exciting things happening and um, we're going to dive right in today. Jen and I are really excited about this because it's the first time we're actually presenting this. Um, basically we went through and we compiled a, a list of most commonly asked questions and also um, the most common things that people don't really know about or understand. There's so many rumors out there. There's so many misconceptions out there about how it might actually um, things work as far as legal documents or planning. So we thought we'd set the record straight today. So um, we're going to go through a lot of different myths and then we're going to set the record straight and then at the end we'll take some time and answer some questions for you all. Um, so I don't want to hold you all hostage while we're working out our technical difficulties, which are my fault today. Um, so we're going to kind of just get started. I'm going to tell you guys the first myth, probably the number one thing we get asked and then I'm going to have Jenna jump into it. So myth number one today is I do not need a power of attorney because my spouse can automatically make decisions for me. So Jenna, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So um, having a power of attorney really is important. And if you don't have one, it could actually be pretty, pretty dangerous and it could really hurt you and your family. Um, what happens if you don't have a power of attorney? Well, if you don't have a power of attorney, then your family's basically stuck. I don't know, I like to give the example, you know, what happens if you try to call the cable company that's in your spouse's name? Typically, they won't talk to you. It works the same way for most finances. So if something happens to you where you can't make your own decisions and your spouse needs to be able to jump in there and pay bills or access accounts or anything like that, then they can't you have to have a power of attorney saying that they can do so or else they're going to be stuck. So if you don't have a power of attorney and you're not able to make decisions, your spouse will have to actually go through the guardianship process, which means that they will have to petition the courts for a guardianship and basically ask the judge if you're allowed to step in and make these financial decisions and access these financial accounts and even pay bills. Um, and guardianship processes are not necessarily the easiest thing to go through. Um, they can be, they're often time consuming. Um, it usually takes about an average of three months to actually go through the guardianship process. It can be pretty costly, um, usually about a, a couple thousand dollars to get through the guardianship process. And lastly, it's up to the judge to decide who will be making decisions for you. So that may or may not be the person that you would appoint to make those decisions. So even if it's not your spouse, you know, if you want your kids or someone that you're close with to make those decisions for you, then you definitely want to have that power of attorney in place. It's so much easier to just have the document in place now. It's cheaper. It's a lot faster, obviously. So it's really, really important that you do have that document in place ahead of time. Um, and we're gonna next go through a couple of those powers of attorney that you should have in place. The first is the financial power of attorney. 
And it is just as it sounds. This authorizes somebody else to make decisions as far as paying your bills, accessing bank accounts, transferring bank accounts, dealing with real estate, you know, if, if real estate needs to be sold or purchased. Um, and really a big part of what we do as far as financial powers of attorney is we, do, we engage in asset protection or, or long-term care planning. And in order for somebody else to be able to do that on your behalf, you know, if you would end up needing care at some point in time, you have to have a good financial power of attorney in place, allowing that person to do so. Um, and uh, next, you'll see a slide that actually has some of the language that typically we don't see in financial powers of attorney, but really it should be in there. So if you do have a financial power of attorney in place, I, I highly recommend that you check to see if this language is in there. So your financial power of attorney has to say specifically that it allows for, the, for unlimited gifts to be made. So it has to say unlimited gifts. Um, most powers of attorney that we look at either restrict it to limited gifts or it just says that your power of attorney is able to make gifts. If it only says they're able to make gifts, then that's understood to be limited gifts. What that means is your power of attorney is only able to gift up to $15,000 per year. That could be to children, to your spouse, that could be gifts to a trust. And when we're engaging in long-term care planning, oftentimes what we're doing is gifting. It's, it's strategic gifting um, in order to protect your assets, but we, we really need that unlimited gift language in there so that we're able to protect as much as possible. And keep in mind too, um, people sometimes see that unlimited gift language in their power of attorney and they get a little nervous that somebody else is able to make unlimited gifts of their assets. Your power of attorney actually has a duty to act in your best interest. So um, obviously gifting your assets to everybody wouldn't, or, or to themselves, wouldn't necessarily be in your best interest. And another thing that you really wanna make sure is in your power of attorney is the ability to create irrevocable trust. Typically what we see is they're able to create trust or they're able to create revocable trust. Um, that irrevocable trust language really needs to be in there so that uh, we can engage in that asset protection again. Because typically, and, and we'll get into this a little bit further in the presentation, but we use irrevocable trust when we're talking about asset protection planning. And a couple other things that should be in your power of attorney is the ability to create special needs trusts if those are needed and also deal with digital assets. Um, digital assets are definitely more of an up and coming issue. Um, Pennsylvania is actually in the process of um, putting legislation in place so that digital assets are something that your power of attorney can automatically handle, but that's not completely complete at this point in time. So um, look for that in the future, but for now it should definitely be something mentioned in your, in your financial power of attorney. Next, we have the healthcare power of attorney. These, this document and the next couple healthcare related documents are, they work a little bit differently from that financial power of attorney. Um, your financial power of attorney typically um, is in place as soon as it's signed, which means that your power of attorney could technically act on your behalf as far as your finances go as soon as it's signed. You don't necessarily have to be incapacitated for that person to step in um, and act in your best interest. And usually we recommend that this be the case. That way, you know, let's say you, you have capacity to make decisions, but maybe you're just hospitalized for a couple days or you're just not able to handle the finances for a, for a limited period of time. It's just, it's more convenient to let your, power, your financial power of attorney work that way. With the healthcare related powers of attorney, like I said, they work a little bit differently. These really don't come into place until you can't make your own healthcare decisions. So as you have a right to make your own healthcare decisions regardless of what these documents say. But if at some point in time you're not able to make healthcare related decisions, that's really when it's good to have these documents in place. So the first one that we're gonna talk about is the healthcare power of attorney. This is typically just a general healthcare power of attorney. It authorizes someone else to be able to make decisions like who your doctors would be, what hospital or facility you'd be treated at. It's HIPAA compliant so that person can talk to your doctors and access medical records, which is really important so they can make good decisions for you. So that's really just the general healthcare power of attorney. 
And the next document is more of a newer document in Pennsylvania. It's the mental health power of attorney. This is very similar to that general healthcare power of attorney. It's just this is, this is more geared towards mental health issues or mental health conditions. So this, this authorizes somebody else to be able to make decisions like who your mental health doctors would be, what hospital or facility you could be treated at again. This also addresses treatments that are specific to mental illnesses though. So this addresses treatments, um, like for instance, dementia. Dementia really doesn't have a cure. All we have are medicinal studies, labs, trials, things that try to keep your brain activity as lucid as possible for as long as possible. But really, there's no proof that any of this works at this point in time. So what this mental health power of attorney does is it gives this other person, your power of attorney, the ability to say yes or no to those types of treatments that are not necessarily proven to, um, to treat the condition that you have. So really important, um, especially if you want those types of treatments to be available. The only issue with this document really at this point in time is under Pennsylvania law, it expires automatically two years after you sign it. So none of the other estate planning documents that we're, gonna, that we're talking about expire automatically. It's just this one. So as soon as you sign this document, it automatically expires two years after that date. Now, if you do, if within that two year time period, for some reason you become incapacitated and you can't sign a new document, then the old one becomes grandfathered in. So you don't have to worry if that would be the case. And the last power of attorney that I wanted to touch on is called the living will. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion about how this document actually applies. So I do like to touch on this document a little bit more. This is what people call the end of life document but it really only applies in very limited situations. So this only applies if you've been diagnosed as being in a permanent coma, a permanent vegetative state, or the doctors are saying you have a terminal condition. So you have about six months or less to live and you're not able to make your own healthcare decisions at that point in time. So if you do find yourself in one of those end of life situations, that's when this document would apply. And so this addresses treatments such as, um, would you want feeding tubes or would you want breathing machines? Would you want chemo? Would you want dialysis? More of those major types of treatments, those would be included in this document. And really, there's no right or wrong answer to those. Those are really personal, personal questions that um, should be answered. I will say our documents also have a special provision for dementia because dementia is not considered a terminal condition in Pennsylvania. So what that says is, if I'm diagnosed with a form of dementia and it reaches those very late stages where basically I, I can't swallow on my own, that I don't want a feeding tube inserted or I'm okay with not having a, feed, a feeding tube inserted at that point in time. So the, that's, those are the basics that we wanted to cover as far as the powers of attorney and why that's really important to have. Myth number two. All my assets pay to my beneficiaries according to my last will and testament. So it's really, really important that you do have a last will and testament in place. But just because you have a last will and testament doesn't necessarily mean that everything's good and everything's going to pass according to what that will says. So if you have any sort of accounts that, are, that have a transfer on death designation, a payable on death designation, or even a beneficiary designation, for example, life insurance and IRAs typically always have beneficiaries designated, whoever you have listed as the beneficiaries on those accounts, that's who will receive those accounts upon your passing. So you really wanna make sure that you have your beneficiaries updated as far as those accounts go. Sometimes we'll see with investment accounts or even checking your savings accounts, you'll have the transfer on death designation or the payable on death designation. It works the same way as a beneficiary. So you definitely want to keep those updated. Real estate also works a little bit differently. It all depends on how that real estate is titled. So if, you, if you're married and you purchased a house with your, with your spouse, then you typically own that as what's called a tenancy by the entirety. And what that means is if one of you passes away, then the surviving spouse automatically takes ownership to the whole property. So that automatically happens even without having a new deed in place. 
a tenancy, a joint tenancy with the right of survivorship, that's typically not with your spouse, but it works the same way as a tenancy by the entirety. So what that means is if you hold a property with somebody else as a joint tenant with the right of survivorship, if one of you passes away, the other person automatically takes the entire property. And then the last type of ownership that might that you might have is the tenancy in common. And what that means is if one of you passes away, your, your, your portion of the property actually passes according to what your last will and testament says. So you definitely want to look at your deed and see if it mentions what, how you hold that property. So again, it's really important that you do review your designations, uh, your beneficiary designations from time to time. Um, I will say it hasn't happened that often, but Kristen and I have both seen um, beneficiary designations on some accounts that really should not be there. I've actually seen um, a beneficiary who the person didn't even know who they are. So it's really, really important that you do a, just, just check those beneficiaries from time to time. Myth number three, all trusts are created equal. So there are, I, I get this often. Um, a lot of clients will come in and say, well, my neighbor has this trust and it's, it's for this purpose and it works like this. I want the exact same thing. Or if it's, if it's not your neighbor, it's a family member. Or, and we really have to have a, a deep conversation before we actually create a trust like that for, for the client. Because, I mean, just because somebody you know has a certain trust in place and it works a certain way doesn't mean that trust is necessarily going to be for you. There are a lot of different objectives for creating trust. Um, the first objective that we get is to avoid probate. Um, you can still create trust to avoid probate in Pennsylvania. Um, when I practiced in Florida, pretty much everybody had trust just for this purpose because the probate process in Florida can be really time consuming and it can also be pretty costly. In Pennsylvania, we don't typically have the same issues. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, probate in Pennsylvania typically isn't really that costly. And it takes about the same amount of time to go through the probate process as it does to administer a trust. So we don't typically create trust for that purpose alone, but sometimes we do if it does make sense. There's also uh, the, the objective of for long-term care protection. And we'll talk more about this here shortly, but we use asset protection trusts or irrevocable trusts for that purpose. There's also controlled gifting. Let's say you've, you've saved up a pretty good nest egg that you'd like to pass down to your beneficiaries, but you don't necessarily want those beneficiaries to receive everything all at once. Maybe you want certain payouts over time. Then we would want to set up a trust that pays out however you want that to look, you know, a little bit every couple years, or if you want everything to go to them at a certain age, um, we, can, we could definitely use trust for that purpose. Also to avoid federal estate tax, um, we're gonna talk about the federal estate tax here shortly, but we aren't doing that quite so often at this point in time, just because the tax rate is so high, or the, um, the exclusion is so high at this point in time. Or if you have a beneficiary who has supplemental needs or special needs, we're not really going to address this in this presentation, but I do want you to be aware that if you have a loved one that you'd like to leave an inheritance to, and that loved one is receiving some sort of government benefits, maybe because they have a disability, or if you expect that they're going to be on disability at some point in the future, it's really important that you have a talk with an elder law attorney or somebody who really specializes in that special needs planning. Mm -hmm. Because if you leave that person an inheritance, you could possibly kick them off those government benefits and that really could be detrimental to a person in that situation. So definitely something to look at. And also for the general management of assets once you pass away, if you want everything to be handled a certain way, um, a trust could definitely be a good option for you. So let's talk a little bit about revocable versus irrevocable trusts. Um, obviously, people hear that, that irrevocable word, and I think they get a little nervous about, you know, what that means. I think a lot of people are under the assumption that if you put assets into an irrevocable trust, that basically those assets are then locked away and you, have, you can't do anything with them. You can't sell them. You can't pull assets back out of the trust. 
Um, they think that you're very, very restricted in what you're able to do with those types of trusts. And actually, Kristen and I use these types of trusts day in and day out, and that's not actually how they work. So revocable does mean that if you put an asset in today, then you can just freely pull that asset back out of the, the revocable trust tomorrow. And it's very, very easy to, um, to maneuver that way. With irrevocable, there are extra steps typically to pull the assets back out of the trust. It's doable, there's just sometimes extra steps. Um, both of these types of trusts we typically draft as what's called a grantor trust, which uh, for your purposes means that everything typically gets taxed through to your personal income tax return, so it makes taxes very nice and easy for you. Um, so the irrevocable trusts are typically what we use for more of the asset protection. Revocable trust we use for, for a lot of the other things, like um, I didn't even mention this, but blended families. So if you have a blended family and you want to make sure that um, your, your spouse doesn't change their will if you pass away, then a revocable trust might be a good option for that. Um, if you want to avoid probate or if you want, to, if you want more of the controlled gifting, then the revocable trust would be a, a good option as far as that goes. Myth number four, I have a beneficiary who has a special needs or a disability. Provisions in my last will and testament are enough to protect that beneficiary. So I talked about this a little bit so far. Um, really, you want to make sure that um, you at least have this discussion with someone who practices in this area. Um, oftentimes, our recommendation is to create a special needs trust. But overall, it's just really, really important that you have this conversation now and don't wait because if something happens where that person who's on government benefits receives an inheritance, there's a good chance that they could be kicked off the government benefits that they're receiving. And oftentimes those government benefits are more beneficial than the inheritance that they're receiving. And then if they need to apply for benefits down the road, a lot of times there can be quite a gap in time before they receive the benefits again. So definitely something to keep in mind. And there's also a slide here that mentions the different types of special needs trusts. And I'm not gonna bog you down with, um, with what all those mean, but typically we like to use what's called a third party special needs trust. And the reason for that is that's the only type of trust that we can use where Medicaid can't try to come back and claim against later on. We don't, we don't want the state to be able to claim any money in that special needs trust. So we typically try to use what's called a third party special needs trust. Special needs planning really is um, a whole nother can of worms. Um, it really takes, it, it, it really takes a lot of um, investigation and what sort of benefits we might be looking at. Um, and it, we could do probably a couple presentations just covering all the different nuances in special needs planning. Um, and it really, really depends on what type of benefits, like I said, that the person's receiving because all these government benefit programs are all, um, they're, they're all different and the qualifications are different. So myth number five, once I engage in long-term care planning and make gifts to an irrevocable trust, I do not need to disclose the assets to DHS, to the Department of Human Services. Kristen, do you want to handle that one? Are you muted? Oh, no, I think I lost oh. you there. I'm good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is a great question, and we're going to talk a lot more about this throughout the presentation today. But I always like to start this part of the presentation where we dive more into the planning and the strategies um, by kind of setting this straight. So we do our planning, we make gifts to an irrevocable trust, and now we need some sort of Medicaid benefits for yourself, your spouse, your parents. Do you have to disclose that to the Department of Human Services? The Department of Human Services is the agency that administers the Medicaid funding in Pennsylvania. So actually, yes, we most likely do need to disclose that. What happens is if a Medicaid application is filed within five years of the gifts to the trust, to the trust all of the gifts, gifts will be disclosed on the Medicaid application. So we report 
everything when we file Medicaid. We tell what the gifts were, what the trust, we send a copy of the trust, verification of all the gifts. We report all of that to the Medicaid office, the Department of Human Services. If a Medicaid application is filed after five years from when the gifts are made, the gifts actually do not need to be disclosed on the Medicaid application. A lot of times though, I am going to just mention those on the Medicaid application, just because chances are at some point in time or another, something's gonna pop up and the county assistance office is gonna say, hmm, what's this account here? So when I file Medicaid applications, I just disclose everything up front. I don't want any surprises as we go through the process. Now, even if we made it through the five-year look back and we have gifts to an irrevocable trust, there are certain types of trust where you can retain the right to income. If this is a trust that you have the right to income, that income most likely is going to be available for your nursing home care. So we are going to have to deal with that and disclose that income. So long-term care planning is the process of protecting assets for your spouse, your children, or whoever your beneficiaries are. Long-term care planning is really important because right now, long-term care in Pennsylvania is over $128,000 a year. On average, it's $10,732 a month. So you can see without proper planning, you can, you can exhaust your life savings in a very short period of time. So myth number six, I wanna spend a few minutes talking about Medicare. So Medicare will pay for at least 100 days of nursing home care. This is something that we hear a lot. So get a phone call, frantic phone call to our office from a new client it says, I thought my mom had 100 days of Medicare coverage, but they're saying it needs to end. One, do I appeal it? And two, what do I do now? Because I've also just been handed a nursing home bill. So let's break down how Medicare works in relation to long-term care. So this is nursing home care. So Medicare will pay for some nursing home care costs for the beneficiaries of Medicare who require skilled nursing or rehabilitation services. A prior inpatient hospital stay of three days is required. And as we know, it's really hard um, to meet a three-day hospital stay now um, as they are shortening hospital stays for everybody using observation beds. So how Medicare works if you actually meet those criteria and you move into a skilled nursing facility. While Medicare does cover long-term care for up to 100 days per year, it is broke down. And the standard is it's going to provide skilled pay for as long as you're receiving some sort of skilled services. The first 20 days, Medicare pays your stay in full. Days 21 through 100, there is a copay. Most of us don't even realize that though because your supplemental health insurance does pick up that. However, we generally see that Medicare pays for skilled nursing home care for about those first 20 days. It can provide more based on what your skilled needs are, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, anything skilled like that. But once this, the facility determines your loved one no longer needs those skilled services, your Medicare is going to end, and then you're going to be presented with the options of discharge, if it's a safe discharge, or your option to stay there, but then go into private pay. And of course, as we mentioned before, the private pay rate can be well over $10,000 a month. So it's really important to have a plan in place. Kristen, I think, I know um, a, a big assumption is that Medicare it will cover long-term care costs, but, and obviously you just said that it doesn't. About how many days do you see on average that Medicare will actually cover? About 20 days, those first 20 days usually, and after that. Even, okay, so you don't even see up to the 100 days, even though it's mentioned uh, here. Typically, most people don't even get, you know, past 20 days covered. Yeah, the only time um, since all the years I've done this that I've had somebody that was covered for 100 days was it was an individual who was on a vent. So they needed that extra skilled services every single day. Okay. So generally it's more like the 20. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's just really good information to know because a lot of times we just, you know, assume or the information that's out there says, oh, well, Medicare is going to cover 100 days. So I think it's really important to give everybody that information so they know that they need to get a plan in place. So if you call me on day one of a mission, then we know we probably have at least 20 days to get a plan in place. 20 days is a lot. So if you think if we can get 20, have 20 days to get a plan in place, or if you call me on day 20 and we're starting private pay the next day, that's 20 days of private pay that, you know, you're going to have to pay because I, I need to get the plan in place. So it's really important on day one of admission or prior to nursing home admission to get this process started. So myth number seven, just switch gear. I just want to spend a very few minutes talking about this. So myth number seven, I am a veteran, so I can qualify for any in-home care or nursing home care to be paid for. So while there are veterans benefits, it's not going to pay for all of your care most likely. So the two different types of benefits that we work primarily with are the service connected or the non-service connected. Service connected is a compensation that's paid to a veteran or a veteran spouse for a disability or an injury that, was, that happened during their service time or is an illness or a disability they have now that can be traced back to their service time. There's a whole list of presumptive illnesses through the Veterans Administration, like certain types of cancers and diseases, and that can be traced back that you may be able to receive a compensation. We deal more with the non-service connected veterans benefits, really the aid and attendance pension. So the next couple slides here, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about these because it goes through a bunch of different rates. But what I want to leave you with is this slide here that shows the highest rate that somebody could qualify for or receive through the veteran's pension. The highest rate's going to be $2,266 a month or $27,000 per year. That would be for a veteran with a dependent, so a married couple, where the veteran need, themselves needs care. Criteria is they have to have some sort of health issue or be over the age of 65, um, and their care costs have to exceed their income. So for this situation, let's say you um, or your loved one are in an assisted living facility or personal care home. Cost of care is $5,000 a month. You only receive income of $2,000 a month. This would be a perfect scenario to apply for the veterans aid and attendance pension benefit to receive up to $2,266 a month to cover that shortfall to pay for your personal care. So personal care, in-home care, they're really good scenarios to consider applying for the VA pension um, and receive the extra benefit. It's not always helpful when we're looking at that skilled nursing home when it's $10,000 a month or so. Medicaid's definitely the better benefit. Now you can receive Medicaid and the veteran's pension at the same time. However, it does reduce the vet veteran's pension by quite a bit. So it's always something that we wanna consider. Does it make sense to have both of them or which benefit is a little bit better? Okay, so I'm gonna skip here. Um, and I want to jump in and talk a little bit about, actually a lot, about Medicaid. So a lot of what we do here at our office is dealing with Medicaid. We're, I know we've already put a lot of information out today. We're going to put a lot more information out today. And it's not to um, overwhelm anybody or confuse anybody. It's because there's so much misinformation out there that we feel like it's very important to educate our community about what's right and what's not. Um, as we're going through this, I want you to keep in mind that our office does offer free initial consultations. So if you're going through this, you're hearing things and you're thinking something's relevant to you, or you have a situation with yourself, your, your spouse, your parents, aunt, uncle, whoever it may be, call us. We, have a, we offer that free initial consultation so we can talk to you about your situation and walk through. Because every situation looks so different. There's no, we don't do cookie cutter planning. Everybody who comes in our office, we start from scratch because we need to. So we're going to jump in now and talk a lot about Medicaid. And that's a bulk of what we deal with at our office. So myth number eight, that Medicaid is an impoverishment program. So only poor people qualify. So I know some of you are probably thinking, well, why are we going to talk about Medicaid? I will never qualify for that. 
and that may um, not that may not be true. So I'm going to talk to you and break it down today. And the truth to this is that approximately 66% of nursing home residents are qualified for long-term care Medicaid. So Medicaid is um, a program where the applicant must meet very, very specific income and asset criteria. So I'm gonna talk through what assets and income look like differently and they are valued very differently. So let's talk about resources or assets that you have. What is countable when you need nursing home or in-home care? What is the state looking at or what's available to pay for your care? And these are all relevant if you're a single applicant or married. Please keep in mind, they look at marital resources as jointly owned resources. So we're looking at bank accounts, checking savings money markets, certificates of deposit, savings bonds, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, life insurance with cash values. So the cash value of your life insurance can is available for nursing home care or the cash value of your spouse's life insurance. And that's a big one that we definitely want to make sure that we protect because we're not just protecting the cash value, we're protecting the death benefit of that policy. Cash on hand, so if you have money shoved in your wall or under your mattress or in a safe, that's available for your care. Non-residential properties. So if you have a property that's not your home, so a cabin, an empty lot, a rental property, anything like that, that property is available to pay for your care. So we see a lot of families that might not have a lot of cash or liquid resources, but they might have a lot of real estate. Situation like that, it is even more important to do some sort of planning because you may never qualify for benefits and you may be forced to sell those properties. Um, so there's, and there are options. So it's always good to know there's options. You, you know, maybe it is in your best interest or maybe you're planning to sell it anyway, but what if not? What if it's a family property? What if you want your children to get it? So there's options. You need to make sure you're engaging in that before the crisis hits. Um, most annuities that you have are countable. Retirement accounts. This is one exception to the marital rule. Retirement accounts of the applicant are available for nursing home care. So if I need nursing home care and I have an IRA, it is available for my care. But if my husband has an IRA, the state can't force him to, um, to cash in his IRA to pay for my nursing home care. Now there's other things, of course, we have to consider. Am I the beneficiary of his IRA? Does that make the most sense since I need care now? So um, a lot of this, you know, we're always thinking superficially, but there's so much more underneath that we need to take into consideration also. Um, motor vehicles. One vehicle is exempt when you need nursing home or in-home care, but any other vehicles are countable. Trust accounts that the applicant can access. So Jenna spent just a little bit of time talking about trust and an applicant or a trust account that you can access would be a revocable trust. So if you have a revocable trust, it's not doing anything as far as nursing home care protection in Pennsylvania. If you have a trust that you think is irrevocable, have us review it so we can make sure it's actually irrevocable. Um, we all too often have individuals come in and think they have a really good trust that's meeting their goals. And when we look at it, we find out that it actually doesn't. So it doesn't hurt to take advantage of that free consultation to make sure everything looks the way that you expect it to. Kristen, something else I thought of, um, prenup agreements, because you mentioned, you know, all marital assets are, are yeah. looked at by the Department of, or, yeah, of yeah. Human Services. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to, I, I was going to, go ahead. Do you want to touch yeah, on that? Yeah. yeah, so that's a great point. So prenuptial agreements are ignored when we're dealing with Medicaid. So if you enter into a marriage, and a lot of times we see this with second marriages, you know, blended families, that you enter into that marriage with a pre, um, prenuptial agreement, um, and then one of the spouses needs Medicaid. Department of Human Services ignores that. They say, we don't care, you're married, everything's available for nursing home care. So that's something to keep in mind as well. While that prenuptial agreement is going to um, protect about, protect you in the event of divorce, 
in those types of situations, it doesn't matter if we need Medicaid benefits. So that's a really great point. So let me go over what's not countable when we're dealing with Medicaid. Because um, we talked about pretty much everything under countable. You're probably thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> so for non-countable, your primary resident your resident property. So let me just expand on that though. So you move into a nursing home, your spouse moves into a nursing home and you need nursing home care. When you apply for Medicaid, your house is exempt from that care. So it's not counted in the assets that you can keep and qualify for Medicaid. However, after you pass away, if your name is still on that deed, the state of Pennsylvania will come back and they will place an estate recovery claim against that property to the extent they've paid for your care. Now they will not kick the surviving spouse out, so you don't have to worry about that, but that claim will stay. So even if you already need care, or already moving into a facility, there's still options with the house. So it's always a, even if you only ask it as a house, it's really important to talk with an elder law firm to make sure you know what your options are. So um, Jenna talked a little bit about properties earlier. Um, and I always like to expand on that as well with what's countable and not countable. So some jointly held properties, um, we can ex exclude. So if you have a property held with a sibling or a cabin, um, I will be honest, years ago, we used to be able to exclude any property that was jointly owned. They, we just said, it's there, it's their family cabin, they own it with their siblings, you can't do anything about it. Department of Human Services is challenging that right now. We're actually going through a situation um, where we tried to say it's still excluded and they are really um, looking into it now. There's still some options, but you have to make sure that you do something with the property because Department of Human Services can force a partition if they feel it's necessary. So without proper planning, essentially forcing a partition is they could force you to sell your part of the property. So how terrible would that be if it's a family cabin or a family property? Um, and now you have, you own it with your brother and then they're going to sell the other half and your brother can't afford it and it's going to go up for sale. So there's a lot of issues there and a lot of things that could happen. So very important to engage in the proper planning to make sure that's, pro that's properly um, tucked away and protected. So a couple of things we already mentioned, your one motor vehicle is exempt for Medicaid, retirement accounts of the spouse that doesn't need care, irrevocable trust as long as they're set up the right way, household belongings, the state's not valuing household belongings right now, irrevocable burial accounts. That's something, unfortunately, we all need at some point in time. Um, so it's a great way to tuck aside funds that aren't available for care. Life insurance policies that have a cumulative face value under $1,500. So even if you have a couple policies, the face values are under 1,500. We can tuck those away. Cemetery lots, burial lots, and term or group life insurance policies, policies that do not have a cash value. Okay, so let's see here. <clears throat> Spousal protection. So while we're talking about Medicaid, what's countable, what's not countable, what's really important to know is that there are options to protect your spouse that doesn't need care. I feel really passionate about this, and I think it's one of the most important things we do at our office is protecting the spouse that doesn't need care. So Pennsylvania is actually pretty good about spousal protection. There are strategies that our office can implement immediately if one spouse moves into the nursing home that we can get the spouse in the nursing home qualified for Medicaid right away and the spouse at home can protect all the assets. So there's things that we can do even after the crisis hit. So please keep in mind that if your parents or your spouse are moving into a nursing home, you need to call us right away because there's things that we can do to protect assets. I never ever wanna see a spouse at home not be able to afford to keep their house, not be able to afford to live their lifestyle that they, they've lived. Um, we don't want those things to change. It's already challenging enough when you're, you know, your love of your life moves into a nursing home. So there are things that we can do. Okay, so myth number nine. So my wife has moved into a nursing home and I was told that I need to pay $10,000 a month until we only have $8,000 left. 
So that is something that we hear a lot. So that's not necessarily true. <laughs> there are a lot of different strategies that we can implement to qualify an individual for Medicaid while protecting assets. So there's various different strategies and it's gonna look different for everybody. So as I just mentioned a moment ago, there's things that we can do in a spousal situation to get all the assets to the spouse at home and qualify the spouse in the nursing home for Medicaid right away, protecting everything. There's other options that we can implement also for a single individual. So there's things that we can do such as purchasing a Medicaid compliant annuity. So that's a special type of annuity where it converts assets into an income. It works for a married applicant and a single applicant. It just works very different ways. The irrevocable trust, we can make gifts to an irrevocable trust. Even if you already need care, we still can make gifts to a trust. We might not be able to protect as much as we would have five years before, but there's still options to provide some protections. Gifting, so gifting to that trust, using a supplemental needs trust and using some financial products. There's a lot of different scenarios. And again, this is why we offer that free initial consultation because we wanna sit down with you. We wanna hear what your situation is and what your goals are. Because Jen and I might come in and say, this is what you guys should do. And you might say, well, here's, you know, here's my goal. And we're, okay, we're gonna work together to figure out what makes the most sense for you and how to um, implement those strategies for you. Okay, so myth number 10, we're moving right along, but we still have lots of information. So we made gifts within the last five years and now my wife needs nursing home care and we do not have money to private pay. The nursing home has to accept her, right? This is something we run into a lot and this is, um, a, we often um, are hearing from nursing homes or nursing homes are sending these clients to our office to help. Um, I'll be honest, nursing homes in our areas have huge waiting list. Um, you know, some of them six, eight months, and especially with COVID right now, a lot of them aren't moving within those nursing homes. So um, if you've made gifts and then you might not have money to pay for them, or the nursing home might not feel like you have the money to pay for them, you're going to the bottom of that list. So that takes an already really stressful situation, just having to place your loved one in a nursing home, then hearing there's a waiting list, and then learning you're going to the bottom of that waiting list because there's some potential issues. Nursing homes have the right to determine not to accept a new resident that's made gifts within the last five years because there's no guarantee that they're going to get paid. So I wanna break it down a little bit and talk to you now about the five-year look back, how it works and how this is relevant. Any applicant for Medicaid, whether in-home or nursing home care, there's a five-year look back. A lot of times we asked if it's a seven-year look back. It's not, it's five years. Um, so the five-year look back means once you move into a nursing home or apply for in-home care, the state looks back five years to see what gifts you've made. A gift for Medicaid purpose is anything over $500 a month. This often comes as a surprise. Most people say, well, I thought I could make $12,000, $15,000 gifts each year. Those are federal gifting limits. Those are a little bit different. For Medicaid, anything over $500 a month is a gift. And that's not $500 per person, it's total. So a gift is anything that you give away and do not receive fair consideration for. You can buy anything you want for yourself. You can go on vacations, you can buy a new car, you can do anything you want with your money, but you can't give, away, give it away and then ask the state to pay for your care. One thing we run into a lot where people, uh, and actually I'll give you a couple scenarios where people um, you know, think that it's not a gift, but it is. Um, paying your child or your neighbor or your friend to provide care for you. If you don't have a contract in place, the state's gonna say it's a gift. Um, paying for your children, your grandchildren's tuition or school or daycare, that's a gift. Um, so I'm not saying this to scare you, I'm saying this to provide the correct information. Um, we, a lot of what we do at our office is gifting, but we have to do it very strategic and in a way that it's not going to impact your benefits. 
So um, if someone comes to our office and they're meeting with us and they're going to get ready to move into a nursing home. We'll say to them, here's our business card, you know, tell this person at this nursing home or this person, we, we have the contacts at all these places, tell them you're working with us. Because at that time, the nursing home knows that they don't have to worry. They know that we're going to take care of it. We're going to make sure they get paid. Because, you know, we talk about the Medicaid, we talk about the gifting, but our job isn't to not get the nursing homes to be paid. Actually, our job is to make sure the nursing home gets paid, just in a different way. So with the five-year look back, um, I want to give you an example. So they total up, if you apply for Medicaid, the state totals up all the gifts that you've made over $500 a month. And then they divide it by the average cost of care in Pennsylvania, which right now is $10,732.83. So let's say you transfer your house, you give away your house, doesn't matter, trust, person, whoever, you give it away. And the fair market value of your house is $100,000. Now you need care and it has not been five years since you made that gift. We divide the value of the gift of $100,000 by the average cost of care. And the state says you are ineligible for Medicaid for nine and a half months. So two different ways this could look. You have enough assets to privately pay for your nursing home care for nine months. If that's the case, great. But what if you don't? What if you have a bank account with $500 in it and you gave away your house and you gave it to your child and your child says, well, I'm not giving my house back. We don't like each other anymore. <laughs> um, then we have a situation because the nursing home's not going to admit you because they're not going to get paid. How are, who's going to pay them? And Medicaid's not going to pay for at least nine months. Now I'll also say along with this, it's not as easy as just saying, well, I'll private pay for nine months. You actually have to get eligible for Medicaid, apply for Medicaid, trigger the penalty for Medicaid, actually get that pe penalty period started. So it's um, very complicated and there's a lot of steps that have to go into this. So anytime you're looking to make a gift, um, even if you think it's harmless, it's definitely um, in your best interest to work with elder law firm to make sure you're doing it in the best possible way. So why can't I just gift everything to my kids? So it doesn't matter who you gift it to. We still have a penalty period. Um, and we're actually going to talk a little bit more here in a couple myths about what is um, some risks involved with outright gifting to your children. Um, so we talked a little bit about this myth, but I definitely always like to just reiterate it. So myth number 11. My wife is receiving Medicaid benefits, so I'll lose my home when she dies. So Medicaid does have an estate recovery program that you need to be aware of, although there are strategies, of course, to protect your property from an estate recovery claim. Um, there's a couple different scenarios that we implement, and it really depends on the situation. So. One option is if we have a spousal situation, one spouse is going to the nursing home, the spouse that's not is healthy. We don't anticipate any health issues. We're just, we can deed the property into the spouse's name that doesn't need care. Now the advantage is we protect the property from a claim. Disadvantage is what happens when the other spouse gets sick. It's not protected from their care. So really the best option is always the irrevocable trust but that's not always an option because then we might have a penalty period. Do we have the resources to pay through it? We can also look at doing things like deeding a half interest of the property. We can sell the property for fair market value. If it's a person that is going to move into a nursing home and um, qualify for Medicaid, the family might decide to sell the house at that point in time. There's also something known as a caregiver child exemption. Um, and I actually am working with a file with this right now, actually. Um, this is when a child has moved into their parents' home to take care of them, has done so for at least two years. And we have to be able to prove that. We have to have some sort of bills that would show that that child's lived there. Um, a doctor also has to sign um, a statement saying that they provided care to keep their, their parent home for at least two years prior to admission to a nursing home. If we meet all those criteria, we can deed the property to the caregiver child um, without any gifting penalty. So that's something that's always exciting when we get to do since that child's, you know, given up so much already to take care of their parents at home and keep them home. Okay.
Myth number 12. Okay, I should give my house to my children so my state cannot take my house. So the old method used to be, let's go ahead and give my house to my child for a dollar. We do not do that. <laughs> we use the trust instead um, because giving your house to your child is not the best way to protect it from the state and it still creates a Medicaid penalty. And I, we always have to spend a few minutes, if you've listened to any of our presentations, we talk about the four Ds, divorce, debt, disability, or death. So give my house to my son and then he gets divorced. So that house is gonna be part of the divorce settlement. Even worse, I'm still living there. Um, give my house to my son and then he has creditors. So he has some sort of debt issues. That house is then available for those creditors. Give my house to my son and then he becomes disabled and needs some sort of benefits. He may not be able to apply or receive those benefits that he would otherwise have been able to receive. What happens if I give my house to my son and he dies? What does his will say? Does he have a will? Where does the house go at that point in time? That's why we use these irrevocable trusts because it protects you and your beneficiaries from the four Ds. It takes the risk out of it. We tuck away the, the asset, the house, or whatever assets it may be into those irrevocable trusts, and it protects it for your lifetime from your creditors and also protects for those beneficiaries. Okay, so let's, we're gonna jump into some tax stuff. I'm gonna let Jenna talk a little bit now. Um, myth number 13, if I gift my house to an irrevocable trust or my children, my beneficiaries will avoid taxes. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. I think once people, once clients hear that their assets are going into a trust, they think that automatically their beneficiaries won't have to pay inheritance taxes, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, in fact, you might, you might not want them to get around inheritance taxes because when, anytime we're talking about taxes, you really do have to watch, you know, sometimes when you're trying to avoid one tax, you cause some significant tax consequences with other types of taxes. So you definitely want to be aware of what the tax situation will be if you change, you know, push assets to a trust or, or gift assets to somebody else, one of your loved ones. Um, but we're going to actually kind of talk about some of the different taxes that you want to keep in mind. The first one that we're typically talking about is the Pennsylvania inheritance tax. Um, unfortunately, Pennsylvania will tax, you know, even if you have a minimal amount of money when you pass away, they want their share. So they're going to tax that. Um, if, if it's your spouse that passes away and everything goes to you, it is a 0% tax rate. But anything that goes to your children or grandchildren, that's going to be taxed at a four and a half percent rate. Um, your siblings, it's 12%. Everybody else, it's 15%. That means nieces and nephews are under the 15% tax. Also another big one that we see, um, if you have a partner that you've been together for a long time, they're still going to have to pay that 15% tax rate. So definitely something to keep in mind if you do have a long-term partner. Um, the only asset that is typically exempt from Pennsylvania inheritance tax is life insurance. So life insurance will pass to your beneficiaries inheritance tax free. There's also ways um, that we can get family farms to be exempt from inheritance tax. I will tell you though that there are quite a few stipulations to make that work and you have to abide by those stipulations for at least seven years after, after you pass away or whoever the owner was passed away. So family farms is another possible exemption from inheritance tax. There's also Pennsylvania realty transfer tax. That applies any time that real estate is transferred to somebody else, including a trust. So typically there's always a 2% tax rate that has to be paid on any transfer of real estate. There are some exemptions, like for instance, certain family members that would be exempt from paying that tax. Um, but if you've ever purchased or sold property, you will see that there was a realty transfer tax that should have been paid um, unless one of those exemptions applied. There's also federal estate taxes. And this is not such a big issue at this point in time, just because the exemption is $11 million per person. So this really doesn't affect the majority of the people. 
So if your estate, if your personal estate is about $11 million or more, then this is definitely something that you want to keep in mind or be aware of. Now that amount, that exclusion amount is supposed to sunset in the year 2025. So what that means is in the year 2025, they anticipate that that amount, that exclusion amount of $11 million will decrease to about seven or $8 million. So if you are anywhere in that, um, in that area, as far as your estate goes, then you definitely want to keep in mind um, what you're dealing with and you might want to do some planning um, because that federal estate tax is 40%. So it is a pretty hefty tax rate if, you, if that does apply to you. And then Kristen actually mentioned, mentioned the federal gift tax earlier. Um, people, people are very aware of this $15,000 that you can gift each year but they aren't really sure how it applies. I think they, I think a lot of people feel that if they gift more than $15,000 per year, they're going to automatically have to pay taxes on that. And that's not actually how it works. Um, actually, if you gift more than $15,000, you have to file a gift tax receipt just so that the federal government can keep track of all the gifts that you make over your lifetime. That way, if your estate is close to that $11 million and maybe you gifted some of your assets so that you can stay under that $11 million, they add all, the, all those amounts in, all those gifts in so that they can make sure that they get their federal estate taxes from you. So what, at the end of the day, if you do gift more than $15,000, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to pay more taxes. It just means that there is, there's a little more tax paperwork that needs to be filed. So that's, that's, those are really the things to keep in mind as far as the taxes go. Um, and then there was something. Okay. So myth 14, I have long-term care insurance, so I do not need to engage in long-term care planning. And I think Kristen and I will kind of address this together. Mm -hmm. um, there are some people that do have the long-term care insurance, um, and some of these plans can be really beneficial to a lot of clients, but it, the typical way this works is the long-term care insurance will pay for a portion of your care, typically about $100 to $200 per day for your care, and it will pay for a certain period of time. So it'll pay that amount for your care per day for maybe three to five years, something like that. So what Kristen and I do is we try to figure out if there's going to be a shortfall because with, with the cost of skilled nursing home care, it's usually about $300 a day. If your long-term care insurance is only paying $100 to $200 a day, there's obviously a shortfall there, and we need to figure out how you're going to cover that extra, that extra money that is due to the nursing home. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we do more of the long-term care planning to figure out, you know, does it still make sense to do some asset protection so that maybe Medicaid would cover more of the, uh, the, the shortfall that is due? Kristen, did you mm -hmm. want to add anything on that? Yeah, um, I think that's great overview, Jenna. Um, and generally what happens is, just like Jenna said, someone says, well, I have long-term care insurance. I don't need to do the trust planning. We're actually, you're at a bigger benefit to do the trust planning. You can protect way more assets. So long-term care insurance is going to run out at some point in time. Um, I think once or twice I ran into somebody that had a unlimited policy. I was, it was great. I mean, that's fantastic. You don't see those anymore. Um, so if you have long-term care insurance, and let's say you purchased it years ago, it covers $100 a day. Well, that's not super helpful now because the average cost of care per day is like about $350. So you still have a shortfall there. You're still going to have to pay out of pocket a couple thousand dollars per month. So it makes sense to also engage in the irrevocable trust planning, gift assets, real estate, whatever it may be, whatever we determine makes the most sense into these irrevocable trusts, get those protected. Then when you do need care, the long-term care insurance pays out and then the, everything's protected that we've put into those trusts as well. Works even better in situations where you're not gonna make it through the five-year look back if you have long-term care insurance. So if somebody comes in, crisis situation, they have long-term care insurance, we can actually put protect more even though they're already in a nursing home because they have that long-term care insurance policy. So it's really important to know that they definitely, both of these work hand in hand. It's really important to have both of these done. Jenna and I also spend a lot of time, you know, looking at these policies with our clients and, and individuals in our office. Um, and we get, get asked a lot, should I 
um, stop paying, the premiums are getting so expensive, which they do tend to do. You know, we'd always hate to see you stop paying and lose the policy because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, but there may be some options if the policy is getting to be too much, or maybe it doesn't cover exactly what you thought it did initially or what you thought your needs were initially. Um, there's different type of policies and different ways to convert it into something that might fit your needs or your finances a little bit better. So there's definitely financial advisors that sell long-term care insurance and really know a lot about them. So if you have a policy, you're not sure what it actually says or if it works the way you want it to, I definitely recommend reaching out to your financial advisor or somebody who does specialize in these policies to make sure it's meeting your goals. Okay, great. Let's see. Okay. Wow. We got through all of those. We, so we had 14 myths and truths. So just a couple of housekeeping things before we um, answer questions today. So what to expect at Steinbacher Good On Your Check? We have a team of attorneys, certified Medicaid planners, long-term care planners, and excellent support staff. We're all knowledgeable at legal planning, asset protection, benefit planning, and the resources available within the communities. Everybody gets an individualized plan at our office. Nothing is alike. Quality documents and peace of mind. <clears throat> so why wait? Schedule an appointment now. I think this is great. So um, since COVID, we've obviously had to transition our practices. As you can see, Jenna and I are both at home. Um, we are trying to really make sure we're putting every safety measure in place possible. We obviously work with the most vulnerable population and we wanna make sure that we are limiting any type of time within our um, offices and with clients. So available appointments are available now. We do phone or video conferencing for all of our consultations and all of the appointments all the way to the signing appointments. Um, it's actually working really well. I have, I was really nervous that front. Um, even though you would, might think I'm a little computer savvy, I am not. Um, so it took a little bit to transition, but I can honestly say that we're able to provide the same quality services from the comfort of our home and your home and while keeping you safe as we would face to face. It looks a little bit different, but it's still working the same exact way. Um, I know a lot of people are waiting now, you know, um, you know, we don't know what's happening. You know, every time we think things are gonna look back to normal, it's starting to, you know, the numbers start to increase and it might be a scary time, but honestly, there's no better time to um, think about your legal needs and your planning needs. People are getting sick that weren't sick before. Um, you know, people need legal documents. Like this is a really good time to take advantage of calling us and scheduling that free initial consultation. Um, and then what else do we have here, Matt? I got ahead of you there. <laughs> Of course, as I mentioned, we're, we always, and I know this might seem repetitive, but we have, we just want everybody to know that we are taking this very seriously. So if you come to our office for the office signing appointments, we're following all the safety precautions, um, everything's set up. We actually have individuals in our state college office and our Williamsburg office that are our safety officers that take their job very, very, very seriously. Um, and they're making sure that we are doing a good job to keep our staff and our clients safe. Okay. Um, so again, we remain, our offices are open remotely and we're working hard every day to service your needs. 